Stanford University. The Human Experience. Inside the Humanities at Stanford University. humanexperience.stanford.edu. Okay, I think we're going to start. People can drift back in. We're going to do a little bit of a different, uh, a, a bit of a shuffle for this, this session. Um, Terry Castle has graciously um, stepped aside because she's going to be a full member in the, uh, a full participant in the last panel of the day. And giving, this would allow more time for the four poets who are going to speak here. And Tom Killian, who's come down from Marin and has to leave and go back, he has another appointment today, um, has stayed. But I'm going to introduce him. Tom will then speak, and then I'll introduce the others, because this will give him a chance to get to his car and get on to 280. All right? So uh, many of you know Tom Killian's wonderful uh, woodcut work. And if you don't, you've seen the book out here, Mount Tamalpais Walking. Many of you also probably know the earlier book that he did with Gary Snyder, uh, called The High Sierras, a uh, combination of Snyder's prose and poetry and Tom's beautiful uh, artwork. And both of those books, by the way, were published by Malcolm Margolin um, and Hayday Press. So Malcolm is here in, in spirit multiple times uh, with Stan and Elaine earlier and, and now with, with Tom's book. Tom grew up on the uh, uh, hip, the shoulders of uh, Mount Tamalpais, was inspired by that mountain that's, that's that's precious to many of us um, from the time he was a young man. Uh, he came to Stanford and got his PhD in African history, worked with Kennell Jackson and Richard Roberts, and has taught history at uh, universities in the Bay Area. But he also has pursued now over many decades this fabulous career as a, a woodblock artist. Um, I'm going to read just one brief quote from his friend and Gary Snyder's friend, Peter Coyote, who said of this book, uh, Mount Tamalpais must have dreamed that these two fine artists, as must have dreamed these two fine artists, excuse me, as a means of affording itself suitable honors. This book is a triumph of subject and form. Don't miss it. So please welcome Tom Killian. Thank you, and uh, excuse me for kind of um, running off. I, I thought the panel was going to start at a different time from what I'd heard. Um, <laughs> and, and thank you, Charlie, for the very nice introduction. Um, th this book is a, a lifetime uh, labor of love. Uh, and it comes from um, uh, what I've been di diagnosed as having as a, a very bad case of topophilia. And, and my friend Gary Snyder has the same sort of disease. Uh, and, I, I've often thought, uh, why is it that, um, that, that landscape has this, uh, this appeal to, to me? And, and I'm happy to say that I'm not the only one suffering from topophilia. And in California, um, it's pretty widespread, uh, especially I see it in the Bay Area. Uh, and, and maybe it's because we live in such a, a beautiful and open landscape. Uh, but um, landscape is... Um, is, is an art form, and art, I think, comes from people playing with what delights them, 
uh, d down at the base of it all. And, and it seems like uh, two of the, the things that, that humans do better than a lot of other animals um, are we see into the distance with great detail and we understand deep time. We understand time over periods uh, longer than, than the immediacy of, uh, of a few days. And maybe we delight in imagining we understand time far, far back into the past and uh, projecting it out into the future. And topophilia really uh, likes to play with those arts of uh, time and, um, and vision. And, and landscape art is something that really comes, comes out of this, I think. And, and so my contribution to this book is a lifetime of uh, attempting to deal with this one subject uh, that I was born and raised underneath, Mount Tamalpais, a little coastal mountain of, of no particular significance. Um, but it happened to be across the Golden Gate from uh, the greatest metropolis of the West Coast uh, for many years. And so it has a storied history uh, in uh, this very, very recent culture of English-speaking California. Uh, and people have been writing poetry about it uh, from way back in the uh, 1850s. And the earliest uh, sort of native-born California poets all wrote about it, and many of the immigrant poets. And as I worked on some sort of text for this book and uh, drew my friend Gary Snyder into the project, um, he, he wanted to do it, but it's very difficult to get him to finally uh, do it, as, as John knows here. And, and John just told me, he, he's written a beautiful essay about Gary Snyder in his book um, that he's going to talk about, I'm sure. Um, but he, he told me that, uh, I just found this out, that, that he also had a commitment from Gary, and somehow the two were crossing <laughs> wires there when we were working on this book. Uh, but, but Gary also wrote a lot of poems about Tamil Pius because he lived in uh, Mill Valley, where I grew up, for um, quite a few years on and off, and, and came back there because his sister lived there. Uh, even when he was in Japan, he would come back to the States for a bit, to California, and then go back to Japan. It wasn't like he was living in Japan all those many years from 1956 until 1968 when he finally returned for good. And, and he, um, he wrote quite a few poems about Mount Tam. Uh, and he also invented a, um, a practice of circumambulating the mountain drawn from some Buddhist uh, meditation practices that he had learned about when he lived in Kyoto and also some uh, practices that are done by people in um, Southeast Asia, in South Asia, in, uh, in the Himalayas and in uh, India. And, and so uh, Snyder really had a body of work about Mount Tam that I wanted to integrate into this book. Uh, and it was only as I started working on it that I discovered that, that these poems that he'd written about Mount Tam, except maybe the circumambulation of Mount Tamalpais, uh, were not his favorite poems. <laughs> in fact, he, he didn't think much of a lot of them. Uh, and, and so we go around and do these events uh, over the last year. We, we did quite a number of events, and uh, it was very hard to get him to, to even want to read any of uh, these poems. <laughs> and, and of course, I loved them because they were about my home. And, and so uh, I, I had lost sight of the uh, actual artistic merit, maybe, in them, because he's a much... Uh, 
more critical judge of that, I think. Uh, anyway, it, it, was a, it was a project that came out of this shared uh, love of Tamil Pius and its little world that has so many different ecological niches in it and so many different uh, vegetation zones and uh, what a wonderful sort of mixed up geology of oolitic rocks that have been sort of scraped off the bottom of the ocean and thrown up here along the, uh, what's now the coast of California. So, so Tamil Pius had this appeal to us and both of us for some, Gary for very deep and, and, uh, and lifetime reasons and me for some obscure reason uh, that doesn't go very deep uh, into study, uh, had this love of the way that uh, uh, Japanese culture has appreciated uh, the land and uh, the sort of the Japanese take uh, on landscape. And, and I particularly, as a child, uh, for, for some unknown reason, fell in love with the, the landscape prints of Hokusai, in particular, Hiroshige too, but especially Hokusai. And, and I spent my whole life trying to make woodcut prints uh, of Mount Tamalpais uh, that somehow evoked that same sensibility that, that Hokusai, with his unbelievably beautiful and elegant line, brought to those uh, early 19th century landscape prints of Mount Fuji. Uh, and when I was um, oh, just at the end of college, I'd learned how to print on a printing press at UC Santa Cruz, and I, I brought um, my, my little collection of linoleum cut prints of Mount Tamalpais uh, to this press and printed a little handmade book, uh, 28 Views of Mount Tamalpais. And when I finished it, I went up with my girlfriend to visit Gary uh, at the house he was just building up uh, uh, at his place above Nevada City and gave him the book and camped out there for a couple days. And, and in these days, he was sort of the guru of the counterculture but didn't want to be. And people were always coming to visit and he's a, he was a little bit off-putting of everybody. And uh, he was, I think, more interested in my girlfriend than me. At least that's what I thought. But, but then I discovered that he, he actually uh, really treasured this book because it was doing something that he understood. And, uh, and he um, talked to people about it many times. And over the years, I got some feedback that, that gave me the uh, idea that I could ask him to collaborate on some other projects. And we've collaborated on many projects uh, one about the High Sierra, got published by Heyday Press, and then finally this uh, Tamil Pius project. And I've been very grateful for uh, all I've learned from Gary in this collaboration. And one thing I've learned, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, is that he, um, he has a particular take on the landscape sensibility of East Asian art, and uh, especially brush painting, Chinese and Japanese brush painting uh, of nature and the attention to the actual details uh, of the plant life and the, the rocks. Uh, there's a little bit of stylization, uh, but, but when you compare it to some similar periods uh, of uh, European art and portrayals of the landscape, you'll see that there's a real attention to the form, uh, the natural form. And, and he brings this, I think, also to his, his language and his poetry. And uh, it must be that that appealed to me as well. So um, 
from this beautiful natural form, as Peter Coyote so uh, sagaciously uh, put it, uh, we got this book, and I hope that Tamil Pius does enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you very much. making the time. Thank you, Tom. And this is the book, of course, as you know. Okay, now we're going to um, turn to uh, the four panelists who are going to talk about poetry. And it's interesting, I was thinking as uh, I was preparing a little few comments, and I'll make these as brief as I can uh, for sake of time, that uh, John Felstiner is a professor of poetry. And do you write poetry yourself, John? I translate. You translate. I know you translate poetry beautifully. And the other th three, uh, two historians and an archaeologist, but poets. Um, so it's an interesting uh, group of people to talk about poetry. Um, one person on the panel, John Felstiner, I'm sure is, uh, 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 an, a, a, is somebody who admires Emerson and would make the high argument that Emerson makes about poetry, that poets are the true and only doctors, that they are the tellers, the only tellers of news, and that they're the ones who can repair a broken world. Um, I suspect that Robert Conquest would uh, probably side with W.H. Uh, Auden in his famous elegy on Yeats, where he said, poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making, right? Um, just a suspicion, and I don't know where Peter and Patrick will come down on this. But let's proceed um, as they're seated. John Felstiner has um, been at Stanford since 1965, John, and um, is well known for his, uh, his books um, on Paul Salon and on um, uh, the book Translating Neruda and as a theoretician of translation. Uh, this latest book that he wrote, beautiful book called Can Poetry Save the Earth? is the work of many years of meditation and teaching. It contains 40 brief chapters, po poems that John selected, and then his commentary on those, those poems and poets. And I think I'm not the only person who believes that given our current uh, situation in the world today that this book is not only welcome, but necessary. And maybe I'll stop there, John, and, and you can speak, and then I'll make brief introductory remarks for the others. So, John Faust. Do you want to do this up Yeah, there? I think I will. Okay. Oh, what a pleasure, and thanks to Charlie, and pleasure to be with my three uh, colleagues here, and also to follow Tom Killian, because I'm going to kind of end up with a little bit, a little tiny bit about Gary Snyder. Here's a keynote to begin with from my book, a keynote that some of you will know. His small wisdom poem really pleased Robert Frost. This small wisdom poem really pleased Robert Frost for its terse, taut lines and plain, idiomatic rhymes. I also like the way those lines unscroll. It's not the handout. That will come a little bit later. I also like the way the lines unscroll one recognition after another. It's called, by Robert Frost, Dust of Snow. The way a crow shook down on me the dust of snow from a hemlock tree has given my heart a change of mood and saved some part of a day I had rude. So I say at one point in my book, which is now being brandished in front of you, uh, 
from, a, from the local scene, a fluent sentence draws black and white and green toward a small but saving epiphany. He hasn't put some there just to fill out the line, hasn't dragged in mood or rude just for the rhyme. And if rude, R-U-E-D, if rude sounds forced, remember the old acid uh, usage? Oh, you'll rue the day, whatever which gives this saving moment a home truth. These 14 seconds worth, four decades before Rachel Carson's silent spring precipitated the modern environmental movement, actually do carry environmental imprint and impetus. For here is nature raw, fresh, clear, unimpinged on, unslobbered over. Yet in the same breath, human presence emerges as our inevitable connection to non-human nature, for worse and maybe for better, gets spoken. Our inevitable connection to non-human nature. Notice it's, just, it's not just the snow that landed on him, but the way a crow shook down, dust of snow. What's more, this connection to the world around us, which nature poems reveal, actually models our planet's core environmental and ecologic predicament. Now, a question mark dominates my title, and it's unfortunately left out hurriedly in the handout. Can poetry save the earth? That's the interrogative you hear so much in high schools and middle schools today. <laughs> but I mean it seriously. Can poetry save the earth? What can poetry say, much less do, about climate change and our myriad other tasks to come? So I was struck to find this welcome thought in Bill McKibben's blurb. He's our strongest, I think, environmental activist writer. He says, among other things, it may not save the earth, though it will surely help, but nature poetry can help save you. And that may be the real answer to that commitment and future commitment of the question mark. The book's 40 chapters go from Genesis, Job, and Psalms. And here, in the beginning of 14 color pages, is the only known witness of the act of creation, <laughs> William Blake. It goes through William Blake to Gary Snyder, to Gary Snyder. Gary Snyder once said decades ago that at age 10, he remembers 1940, at age 10, he came upon an ancient Chinese mountain scroll in the Seattle Asian Art Museum that blew his mind and changed his life. Well, I was puzzled by that when I was about to interview him a while back, so I looked it up and eventually I managed to find that scroll, which he still has not seen, but I sent him the pictures. And here it is. Islands, Mountains, Houses, Bridge, Huan Hui, 18th century. Gary couldn't be sure about 70 years ago, but he says this could be the one. But I know it's the one, it's the only possible one. The chapters in between Bible and Gary Snyder, Western Wind, The Wordsworths, Coleridge, Keats, John Clare, Whitman, 
Dickinson, Hardy, Hopkins, Yates, Frost, Edward Thomas, Stevens, Williams, D.H. Lawrence, Jeffers, Marianne Moore, Millay, Neruda, Kunitz, Rexroth, Retke, Oppen, Bishop, Swenson, Stafford, Lowell, Levertoff, Shirley Kaufman, Haynes, Cumin, Ammons, Merwin, Kinnell, Donald Hall, and Jane Canyon, Hughes, Walcott. One, one of the great um, legal, legal firms in uh, San Francisco. <laughs> my point, my thrust all through this book is to enact and to voice nothing more and nothing less than attentiveness, Aufmerksamkeit, if you like, attentiveness or mindfulness, attentiveness bringing poems to life so that we might segue actually into an attentiveness given to the natural world inspiring those poems. Finally, here's another keynote, the one I chose when NPR's Morning Edition asked what poem I'd choose if poetry could indeed save the earth. And you have it in front of you too. William Stafford, The Well Rising. The well rising without sound, the spring on a hillside, the plowshare brimming through deep ground everywhere in the field, the sharp swallows in their swerve, flaring and hesitating, hunting for the final curve, coming closer and closer. The swallow heart from wingbeat to wingbeat, counseling decision, decision, thunderous examples. I place my feet with care in such a world. There's much to be seen and heard in this poem, and I do unscroll it, literally, line by line in my Stafford chapter. But I'll end now only by asking, why thunderous? And examples of what? And am I finally comprehending, or am I not, what my grandma used to say to me back in the late 19th century, Oi, such a world. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Uh, we're honored to have Robert Conquest with us this afternoon. Uh, many of you know that uh, Robert Conquest is one of the most distinguished Soviet historians of his generation. Um, you may not know that he's also a prolific poet. Um, for over 70 years, uh, he's been writing poetry and uh, has six volumes, and this penultimata is his seventh volume of poetry. He was educated at uh, Maudlin College, among others, um, saw combat on the Ukrainian front in the Second World War, then served with the British Foreign Service for 10 years, and over the past 50 years has alternated between um, freelance private writing and um, stints in academia most of the time, fortunately for us here at the Hoover Institution. Um, so please welcome uh, Robert Conquest, who will talk about his latest book, Penultimate. This is dated quite a long time ago. Well, as you see, I'm looking through the early page. 
pages of my collection. It's called Guided Missiles Experimental Range. Soft sounds dodos brim up through the night, a wealth below the level of the eye. Out of a black and almost violet sky, abundance flowers and points of light. Till from the southwest, as I low scream Mars and halts this warm hypnosis of the dark, three black automata cut swift and stark, shaped clearly by the backward flow of stars. Stronger than lives, my empty purpose blinded, the only thought their circuits can endure is the target hunting rigor of their flight. And by their loveless haste, I'm reminded of Aeschylus' description of the Furies. O barren daughters of the fruitful night. I bet you why Dennis liked it. He said, because it doesn't like me, it, it, it doesn't throw you out at the end. It ends up without chucking you out. Which is a nice way of thinking of looking at it. That's, that's one way. One way of looking at it. And that doesn't mean it's the best poem in the world, or indeed a very good poem, but it, it gives, gives a, an input from outside, which I greatly liked. I, I but, but, but leaving aside inputs from outside, otherwise I get round to a quotation from Tom. Once I'm on Tom, it's interesting. A quotation from him, which, which I, I just say, I, I got a a note from a poet who said, I liked your last book, all about girls and aeroplanes. <laughs> I can't put that down anywhere very much. But it's nice to have that input, isn't it? But, but, but what I'm doing now, I've got a book just down called Penultimate. Do you like the title? Yes. It, it, it contains all sorts of fairly recent poems. And I, I don't want to inflict too, too many poems on you, but I, uh, I'm, I think I was, <coughs> I'm sorry. I'm very much against drinking water, so. But this is a rather ordinary poem. After, called Afterwards. Quotation, a famous remark, recollected in, 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 recollected in tranquility. What do you remember? Is it so necessary for a wild memory to fade and blur before the full charge of an old love or rage can really register? With a life's long perspective, the changed picture gives more depth as twisted faces, as twisted faces shrink to little more than pink blobs on the landscape. A passion sharp and hot might once have seized the heart to rip or scold. So far as this can be recalled in tranquility, it's not recalled. I, I read this, uh, actually, um, I went on to, to Bob's website and read some of the poems in penalty, you say penultima, penultimata, I say penultimata, uh, I guess I'm American. 
fabulous poems. Um, some of them astonishingly, astonishingly erotic, congratulations, and, and wonderful to read. Um, but I had this passage, if you don't mind, Bob, am I reading this uh, from a British poet, Alan Jenkins, who had this to say about your book. He said, the whole of Penultimata is about what's left of love and beauty after a long life and 3,000 or more years of Western civilization. To be recovered in memory, in a Roman figurine, in sharp sensuous delight, or in speculation on the nature of the universe. To poetry folk, Robert Conquest is a legend for having helped promote the talents of, among others, Philip Larkin and Tom Gunn of the movement. And in the wider world, he's revered for having published The Murderous Realities of Stalinism. In this new volume of poetry, as in his history, a hunger for truth-telling is in evidence, as are the virtues of his poetic craft, precision, wit, craftsmanship. This book will be a continual reminder of times when poetry was turned to in the sure and certain hope of pleasure and instruction. So thank you, Bob, for being here with us this afternoon. Next up is Peter Carroll. Peter is the author of more than 17 books. I've known Peter for years as an historian of the uh, Spanish Revolution, the Spanish uh, Civil War, sorry, Spanish Civil War, which he still is actively. Um, I didn't know he was a, a poet, but uh, this, this poet, uh, book of poetry that he's written, Riverborn, is marvelous. I'll let him tell you about it. Um, it came out the same year as a book, which I'm glad to see we do have on our book table here. Uh, which is James Neugass's long-lost Civil War journal called War is Beautiful. Many of you know Peter teaches in the history department, and fortunately for us in continuing studies, he also teaches with us, as does his wife, Jeanette Ferrari, the food writer, um, a man of many talents who also has um, a book in progress that I'm sure you'll tell, tell us about. So, Peter. Thank you, Charlie, um, and Peter Stansky, please, for uh, having me here again or for the first time. Um, these are two different books. It's sort of, um, this book I didn't write, War is Beautiful. I edited it. Uh, I didn't find it, but I can tell you a remarkable story. And since I'm not the author, I'm not boasting either. I would say that this is one of the most important books in the English language to come out of the Spanish Civil War. There are more books written about the Spanish Civil War in content than World War I. It's the kind of thing that has touched writers for now three generations. You've heard of Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls and Orwell's Homage to Catalonia and scads and scads of other books. Nugas was a, uh, a poet in New York in his 20s. He was raised in a very wealthy family in New Orleans. And in the 20s, his father went to New York and prospered as a stockbroker. Um, but raised a son who um, had other thoughts. He was definitely a lefty. When the Spanish Civil War broke out, he went to Spain as a volunteer ambulance driver. And because he was a poet and published in many magazines through the 20s and 30s, he went to Spain with uh, a notebook and with carbon paper. And he sat in his ambulance at every opportunity. And he wrote. He was interrupted by bombs by machine guns, by emergency calls. It, it is the most vivid description of battle, and certainly of that war, that has survived in English. 
Hemingway obviously was not a combatant. Orwell was wounded. Most of his book isn't about that. Most of his book is about the politics. But day in, day out, he drove this ambulance through frontline combat. Um, the fact that he had a Red Cross uh, occasionally painted on his truck, uh, he realizes is made him a target rather than an object of safety. And of course, they camouflage all the markings after that. Um, and toward the end of his experiences in Spain, he actually has to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat to save his own life. It, it's a remarkable book. He died in 1949, uh, suddenly at the age of 44 in a New York subway station, leaving behind two children, one who was about five and one who was about two. But they did not know that their father served in Spain. There were reasons in the 1950s to talk about that. And um, they never knew that this manuscript existed. Uh, it was found around 2000 in a Vermont bookstore by a book dealer, someone who goes around, they call them pickers, I think, pickers and choosers. They knew, he knew, he recognized that when he saw the manuscript in his bookstore that it was valuable, and he brought it to the University of Illinois in Urbana, which owns the original copy of it. Um, my colleague, Peter Glazer, with whom I co-edited this manuscript, had to, contact, had to get permission to use some of Nugus's poems for, an, for his dissertation, actually. You know, you can't quote poetry just randomly. You gotta get some. And somehow he got steered on to Nugus's son, also named James Nugus, who was living in North Carolina. And they talked, and he, he was glad to give Peter the permission to use the poem. And then this question of the manuscript came up, and the kid never heard about it. Didn't know anything about his father. You know, nobody talked about it. And uh, as I said, it's an extraordinary thing. I'm, if I, I, I want to talk about my own book, too, but let me read you one little section to give you a sense of it. it um, it's about a nurse who lived in Pacifica. Her name was Santa Goldblatt, and I knew her. She must be dead about eight years now, who was a nurse, also a volunteer in the Spanish Civil War. And, um, there was always not enough food, and Nugus was often sent out with his ambulance to scour around and come back with some food for the hospital. And of course, there were seriously injured patients in the, in the wards, one of whom was a captured German who was severely wounded in his head, I believe, and um, who was terrified that he was going to be killed because he was on the other side. He was, he was supporting the Francoist rebellion. He was one of, uh, I think an airman probably shot down uh, that came with the Luftwaffe to bomb Spanish cities. You've heard of Guernica. All that bombing was done by Germans. So anyway, he, this guy's in a hospital. He keeps his head hidden. He's afraid someone's going to see him, recognize him. And Santa, this day, has discovered a vast amount of eggs. A great change came over the fascists this morning. Santa had soft-boiled a quantity of eggs for the patients. As she worked down the ward, carefully feeding liquid gold into the mouths of each man. I wondered what she would do when she got to the fascist. The sheet had come down from his face, and he was for once quiet. The eyes of even the half-conscious were on him and on Santa. Would he be fed? It would be easy for me to say, all wounded are as alike as corpses. We do not hate the fascists when they lie in our hospital, but only when they do not. 
It would not matter if the head case were a German artilleryman or an Italian warrior or William Carney, the New York Times reporter, or Handsome Adolf or Mussolini or blind old General Milan Estray or the Tercios yelling down with intelligence, hurrah for death. All wounded should be given eggs when we have eggs. I am a poor hater of people and a great hater of ideas. If a man has cholera or smallpox or fascism, you hate not the man but the germs he carries. You do not hate Hearst or attempt to destroy him. His ideas may not be killed with a trench knife. Therefore, the fascist should be given an egg, although the underwounded men in the ward look at him as if he were the one who shot them, and perhaps he was. If our supplies had run so low that we had only a single ounce of ether or a dram of morphine, a foot of cat guttle, and one bandage roll left, and two patients to treat, I think the Republican would get them and not the fascist. When the operating tables are so busy that their doors are blocked with unconscious men waiting on stretchers, who should be taken first, our men or theirs? Two men are heavily wounded. Both of them should be operated on immediately. The militiaman's chance of living are greater than the fascist. But many hours have passed since both men should have been treated. Would the major be justified in first operating on the Republican? With the entire ward looking at her, Santa held the fascist's head case in her arms and fed him two soft-boiled eggs. She is not Mary Magdalene, and he is not Christ. If this is religion, then I am religious. Calm has come over the ward. The wounded fascist no longer keeps the bedsheet over his eyes. Desperation has gone from his cries. Softly, he calls for the Virgin Mary to cure him. Although he, can, he no longer believes we will kill him, he may still think that we want to kill God. This is one of 40 such passages that you'll never forget if you, if you go to read it anyway. I, it's just been translated into Spanish. It got a rave review two weeks ago in El Pais, the major newspaper in Madrid. So this is an embarrassment of riches, Peter. I don't think anybody has two books in one year. So if you could read a, maybe a short poem from I'll read Riverborn. something short. River, Riverborn is my poems of, of traveling down the Mississippi River for the second time in my, in my life. I did it in 1972 with a friend named Jim. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about this uh, a few years ago. And I said, well, I had a question about something. And I didn't want to tell him what the question, you know, what I was looking for. But I said to him, what do you remember from the trip? And he mentioned right off the top of his head about four or five things, very specific things. And they were the only things I remembered. And I said, you know, come on, let's do it again. So Jim and I went down the second time. We went by car. And since this is all about Mark Twain in 1910 and everything, I'm going to read a Mark Twain poem um, uh, that's set in Hannibal, Missouri, where Mark Twain grew up. And there's well, one passage, I think, that is actually just a quote from Mark Twain. And when I get to it, I'll stick up my finger. It's in italics in the book, you know. So it's called Hazy Day Just After Sunrise, Hannibal, Missouri. Jim patrols past tourist shops, pushes open a cafe door. Deep fries choke the air. Mustachioed workers puff breakfast cigars. We browse Christian flyers taped to the counter. Gung-ho for the troops in Iraq. Assorted patriot clamor. We hear Twain grumble and sigh.
Jim rolls his eyes. We hold our opinions until outside, then stroll Twain's tourist route, America's hometown, the village he revisited. New houses saw plainly enough, but through solid bricks and mortar saw the vanished houses formerly stood there with perfect distinctness. Mark Twain Museum, Mark Twain Hotel, the Mark Twain Clopper, the Mark Twain Museum Annex, Clemens Justice of the Peace Office, Mark Twain's boyhood home, the anchored red, white, and blue side-wheeling Mississippi steamboat, red-leaded capitals, Mark Twain, whole towns rehabilitated, restored, whitewashed, gentrified, facsimile, leased, ticketed, priced, and then Jim spots real trouble in very fine print. This park monitored by video surveillance. Thank you very much. And finally, Patrick Hunt. Uh, Patrick is a, a man of many abilities, many talents. Uh, he's a, a Roman archaeologist trained in Britain and has written a number of books on uh, Roman archaeology and on Alpine archaeology. Had a project, uh, maybe still be going on, that was funded by the National Geographic to uh, trace the route of Hannibal over the Alps. Um, and has ventured as widely as Renaissance painting, a good book on Caravaggio. And all of his life, at least since, since he's reached consciousness, I suspect, he's been a poet and has written a number of books. And this most recent one, I don't have my notes in front of me, Patrick, is entitled Cloud Shadows of Olympus. Nice title. So, Patrick, wrap it up for us. Thank you, Charlie. And Peter Stansky, thank you for your amazing vision in keeping alive a celebration of authors that the associates of the Stanford University Library pioneered. Thank you, Peter, and, and thank you, Charlie, for keeping that going. So many connections today, and I wish to uh, just also thank um, my publisher, Richard Reed, who's here today. Richard, uh, after his PhD at Oxford, uh, went back to the family business in New Zealand his great-granduncle was knighted by Queen Victoria for the Reed Publishing House, swallowed up by that gargantua Reed Elsevier a few years ago. So Richard has very kindly uh, recently uh, begun Corinthian Publishing, and this uh, venture together is a pleasure. Some of you here uh, have been very instrumental in this, and John Felstener, thank you so much for uh, at least over a year ago, I uh, dropped a manuscript in John's lap, and John was very encouraging, and so there are several poems in here, as well as dedication to John for your amazing encouragement of poetry. John, thank you. And uh, others, Scotty, the, some of you know there are poems uh, written in here for you. I'd like to just read two very quick poems, and as Charlie mentioned about being an archaeologist and maybe a poet too, I, I sometimes think my archaeologist colleagues are, have far more imagination than I do with uh, reconstructing the past. Uh, here, uh, this small book of poetry uh, takes its idea from maybe a bit of a fantasy uh, have you ever heard that some people actually posit that clouds are a life form? 
interesting. Well, in revis revisiting the idea that uh, Olympus is above the clouds, uh, this little book is mostly about antiquity, uh, the musings of someone who uh, is, uh, in this case, very much inspired by ancient history. Not all the poems herein are about ancient history. While they're not clearly ballads chiefly lyrical, uh, nonetheless, I think most of them uh, are celebrating lyricism. And for years, while I was writing a book, uh, a poetic analysis of the Shir HaSharim, the Song of Songs, I carved a bed uh, along that theme. I took the Song of Songs, sometimes called the Song of Solomon in the Anglophone world, and I carved a bed. I literally uh, bought the wood, took burins, and carved grape clusters and pomegranates and doves and uh, stags, and I gilded uh, as much as I could in that bed, and I had lots of little cuts in my hands from trying to create a bed out of wood uh, based on the Song of Solomon. Naturally, the Song of Solomon was very uh, inspiring to me. It's probably the most lyrical collocation of poetry and songs uh, in the world. So here's a very short poem on Song of Solomon. It's how we remember first love, not closed in a room, but outside. Lavender fields freshly cut, smelling sunlight on our skin. Cicada sounds slice purple air. You undress in silhouette. Graceful cedar with a lustful sun behind you like a voyeur. Loosing your hair on my shoulder, there is no turning back when clumsy shyness flees because instinct remembers what the mind fumbles. A million generations repeat stag and doe leaping on hills. We sleep till gentle dusk, leaving behind a soft hollow in this field. Grass not so much crushed as pressed together sweetly by our urgent tangle of limbs. The next one is about the Library of Babylon. You may know Borges' uh, uh, ideas thereof. Four kings in that Neo-Babylonian dynasty. Nabopolassar, his son Nebuchadnezzar, his heir and successor Nabonidus, and last, Belshazzar. Perhaps you know Rembrandt's great painting of 1632 on Belshazzar's feast. This poem, uh, perhaps ironic, is talking about the Library of Babylon, those four generations. I spend a lot of time in the British Museum going through cuneiform collections. So, uh, King Nabonidus started his collecting early as a boy. Clay tablets from crumbling cities. Exotic parchments made from lion skins cuneiform looking like what lion claws raked, or sifting traces of meteoric dust writ by fallen stars with mysterious whispers recorded across deep Euphrates nights. He was not at all like his hyperactive father, Nebuchadnezzar, bored by his droning seers, Nebuchadnezzar who gathered gold treasures, temple candlesticks, slave girls who could dance on their fingertips, playing tambours with their toes, 
while he crushed empires like game pieces. No, Nabonidus preferred his bookishness, retiring to his endless palace archives. It was Gilgamesh, his scribes, copied best. But then, his son Belshazzar had no time to augment the library of Babylon. His only contribution was ephemeral handwriting on a wall before vanishing. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.